Welcome to episode 9 of the Rooted Reason Podcast. My name is Brandon. This is the podcast aimed at the practical application of the Christian worldview. And on this episode, we're going to finish up um, our episode on the atonement. It's part 2 where we go over some of the scriptural reasons that I hold to an atonement for all. And on this episode, we're going to be looking at five sections of scripture. Um, we won't cover them all in as much detail, but a couple we're going to cover in quite a bit of detail and then just highlight a few others. Um, but those scriptures are going to be 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 6. We're going to look at 2 Peter 3, 9. John 3, 16 through 18. Hebrews 2, 9. And 1 John 2, 2. 1 Timothy 1. Sorry, 1 Timothy 2. Verses 1 through 6 reads, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as ransom for all which is a testimony given at the proper time. My general understanding of this, these verses is that prayers, supplications, thanksgiving should be made for all people, as verse 1 tells us, um, just as the grace of God extends to all people through his desire for them to come to the knowledge of truth. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, and the one mediator Jesus gave himself, as verse 6 tells us, as a ransom for all because he's the only mediator between God and men. It seems like a fairly straightforward section of Scripture um, and what it's saying and what it means. Um, and so I went to some of the like more common objections I've seen to try to understand um, why someone would object to how I understand these verses. And so we're gonna actually going to look at a couple of those um, common objections that I've seen quite often. So the first of those that I've come across um, uh, through different forums, different mediums, and then through like John Gill and his commentary. Um, basically, the first objection is that the verses are not talking about all men, all individual men, but are talking about all types of men or classes of men. Um, and so they will. the objection starts like in verse 1, uh, saying that we don't give thanksgiving for wicked men. We don't give thanksgiving for false teachers. Um, we don't pray for, we don't, intercede for false teachers and things of that nature, so it can't mean all men. Uh, many men are also dead, and so we don't pray for them. There's no need of prayer for those that have died. Um, so it clearly can't be all men, at least um, according to this objection. Um, and in that same kind of vein, verse 2 confirms that, in that it breaks down the all into categories of kings and all in authority. I've even heard, actually, just uh, this last week, came across uh, an objection to this very verse in that same vein. It was saying that um, if you haven't opened a phone book and gone through and read each individual name and prayed for that person, then you don't actually really believe that it means pray for all people, um, which is actually a pretty ridiculous thing. That it was some kind of objection to say if you haven't gone through a phone book and read each individual name and prayed for them, then you don't think this means pray for all people. Uh, it's, it's a pretty ridiculous uh, objection to it, but... It's, I've seen it more than once, and so something that actually is out there. Though I don't think it's a, a, a proper or a scholarly um, objection. So a few reasons I'm uh, unconvinced by that first objection um, is, first, uh, I don't think 
it means specifically that each of the four categories, the prayer, supplication, intercession, thanksgiving, has to be given to each individual person we pray for. I think he's listing out kinds of prayers and saying we pray for all people. And so I might give thanksgiving um, for my pastors or for my family or for my friends. Uh, we make supplication for the unbeliever. You know, we pray for their hearts to be turned away from their folly. Um, so I, I don't I don't think the objection holds it saying that if I believe that, I must give thanksgiving for a heretic or for a false teacher. But I'm called to pray for that false teacher, that God will turn them away from their folly and not um, let them continue on to their own destruction. Uh, and I also think it opens up the question of, well, then do I get to decide who I pray for if I'm only called to pray for all types of men or classes of men, um, can I look at somebody that I run into in my life and use this verse as a reason to say, well, I don't need to pray for them because I don't want to, and I don't have to because I'm not supposed to pray for all men, only all kinds of men. And I've already prayed for an unbeliever today, so I don't need to pray for that unbeliever. Or I've already prayed for uh, somebody in authority, uh, like a local authority, so I don't need to pray for that other authority because I've already covered that class of men today. So with that in mind, how would I understand verse 2 in relation to praying for all people, meaning we pray for all people, not classes of men or um, groups of men, but we actually pray for all people. So Paul writes to Timothy and encourages Timothy and encourages all those that are going to read Timothy's letter to pray for all men. Verse 2 specifically says those in power, those in authority, because generally, more than not, that those were the people who were enemies um, of Christians. They were violent persecutors of Christians, and it would be very easy for them to not pray for those that persecuted them, those that were oppressing them. And so that's why I think they're specifically drawn out when he says all people, and he specifically brings up those that are opposing them and are against them, and he's reminding them that, no, you pray for even those that are against you. And there's a notion, um, actually in John Gill's commentary, where he says uh, about verse 2, um, and this is an opposition, talking about Paul telling Timothy to specifically pray for those in power. He says, and this is an opposition to the notion and practices of the Jews who used to curse the heathens and pray for none but themselves and those of their own nation. So again, there's a, there's a scriptural reason why he is specifically drawing out these types of people, after he says, pray for all, he brings out these specifics because those would be the easiest to not pray for. So I'm unconvinced that the specificity of kings and those in authority is saying all classes of men. I'm more convinced by the idea that he's specifically drawing them out from the all to say, even those that are opposed to you, you must pray for. The second objection I've seen is that if God wills something, it must happen. It's an absolute, unconditional will. And so I agree in Scripture. Um, there's times where Scripture speaks of God willing something, and it, it does mean His eternal decree, His preordained plan. But it's also used to speak of things that are pleasing to God. So like another verse we're going to look at later, He wills not the death of a sinner, but that he should turn and live. So my understanding of First Timothy, beginning of First Timothy chapter two, um, I think very clearly speaks of uh, atonement being made for all. We're supposed to pray for all people. I don't get to choose who I pray for. I don't get to write somebody off because of 
um, their position uh, because maybe they're oppressing me or they're uh, against me or opposed to Christianity. Um, I am called to pray for all people. And that all carries through these verses. Um, It's good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior for us to pray for them. And it says that he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Again, verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So we pray for all, just as God desires the salvation of all, and that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Let's look at our second um, set of verses here, 2 Peter chapter 3. Um, verse 9 is going to be the one we're gonna, where we're going to focus, but I'll read um, from verse 3 or verse 4 forward. Uh, Peter is talking about um, the promises of God and that in the last days scoffers will come. And so in verse 4, Peter starts by saying, uh, talking about the scoffers, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. The word in Second Peter 3, 9, uh, that the ESV translates wishing, um, that some other translations uh, translate desire or will. Uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce the word, um, but it means to plan with full resolve. Um, so it's a strong term that underlines the predetermined intention um, driving the plan, uh, resolving of God's will. And it actually goes on to say um, in the word study on the uh, Blue Letter Bible app, it says that um, this word can actually um, be contrasted with another word that means uh, God's will or intention or desire. And that it says, uh, again, while this other word, the theolo, we're going to offer that as the way to pronounce it. Uh, it says, while that word can be rejected, the word used here in Second Peter three nine um, for planning it always works out his purpose, especially in conjunction with presetting the physical scenes of history. So this word here in Second Peter three nine is a very strong word for God's will. And so, if the objection from First Timothy two can be that God gets what He wills um, all the time, if you if you actually willed something, it necessarily happens. So that can't mean in First Timothy 2, that he wills all men to be saved, or that would happen. Um, I don't think that can be applied here to 2 Peter 3, 9, because this is saying that he wills that no nobody will perish. He wishes that not any would perish and that all should reach repentance. So if we're going to keep that same theme, um, that what God wills, he always absolutely unconditionally gets, that means that he wills for n- nobody to perish and that all will repent. But we know that's not true. Um, and actually, it's interesting. The word that the word study says that theo, theolo uh, word that can can be rejected. Um, how it understands the two differences in these words of will is actually the word that's used in First Peter two, 
that he wills that all men will repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's actually the word that is a softer version of will or intention or desire from God. And so I really think that that objection from First Timothy um, doesn't hold. And then when you if you apply that same idea over to Second Peter three nine, um, it really doesn't hold. I see no reason to think that it's a good objection in First Timothy two um, against the idea that all means all in those verses and doesn't mean classes of men. So some would say, sure, that's what I'm doing. I'm that's what I'm saying. I'm applying that uh, to Second Peter three nine as well. And so you see in those verses that uh, I think it's more complicated than just a simple of saying, yeah, sure, that's what it means. Um, because God is saying that he's being patient and waiting um, for those that need to repent. That he's, um, the perishing that's ensuing in verse 9 necessarily entails uh, that he's being patient for that repentance. So God doesn't want certain people in their congregation to perish, but to come to repentance so naturally, if they need to repent in order to avoid perishing, then we know that some of those in the congregation, speaking specifically of those in the congregation that Peter's writing to, are not born again. So the principle still holds that God has patiently given them time to repent and to be saved. And to further emphasize my point, I'm actually going to I'm actually going to read a little bit from Calvin's commentary on Second Peter three, verse nine. He writes, But the Lord is not slack or delays not. He checks extreme and unreasonable haste by another reason. That is, that the Lord defers his coming that he might invite all mankind to repentance. For our minds are always prudent, and a doubt often creeps in why he does not come sooner. But when we hear that the Lord in delaying shows a concern for our salvation and that he defers the time because he has care for us, there is no reason why we should any longer complain of tardiness. He is tardy who allows on occasion to pass by through, through slothfulness there is nothing like this in God, who in the best manner regulates time to promote our salvation. And as to the duration of the whole world, we must think exactly the same as of the life of every individual. For God, by prolonging time to each, sustains him that he may repent. In the like manner, he does not hasten the end of the world in order to give, t- in order to, give to all time to repent. This is a very necessary admission so that we may learn to employ time all, time aright, as we shall otherwise suffer a just punishment for our idleness. Not willing that any should perish, so wonderful is his love towards mankind that he would have them all to be saved, and is of his own self prepared to bestow salvation on the lost. But the order is to be noticed, that God is ready to receive all to repentance, so that none may perish. For in these words... The way and the manner of obtaining salvation is pointed out. Every one of us, therefore, who is desirous of salvation must learn to enter in by this way. But it may be asked, if God wishes none to perish, why is it that so many do perish? To this my answer is, that no mention here is made of the hidden purpose of God, according to which the reprobate are doomed to their own ruin, but only of his will, as made known to us in the gospel. For God there stretches forth his hand without a difference to all, but lays hold only of those to lead them to himself, whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world. So even Calvin recognizes that in Second Peter 3.9, the desire is for the salvation of it all, that God is not 
um, quick to the destruction of the world, but is slow, working out his plan of salvation, giving time for all to repent. Now, where I may disagree there at the very end in how God stretches forth his hand and lays hold of those that he brings to himself, those he's chosen to the foundation of the world, I disagree with Calvin's understanding of what that means to be chosen for the foundation of the world. Um, where I don't disagree is the vast majority of this text is talking about his desire to save all and that all would come to repentance. And that he is slow in the destruction of the world. He's slow to bring about the end so that all have time to repent. And we'll get into um, where I disagree on chosen for the foundation of the world, how I understand that um, in, our, in, a, in a future podcast when we talk about election and the differences of election that I hold. We're going to um, shorten Hebrews, the discussion on Hebrews 2.9 just a little bit because I want to um, leave adequate time to talk about John 3.16 through 18 and 1 John 2.2. 2. Um, but Hebrews 2.9 is still very important, so we are going to read it. We're going to start in verse 5, Hebrews 2.5. says, For it was not to the angels that God would subject the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I mean, these verses in Hebrews 2 are uh, just absolutely amazing to realize um, what God did um, for our salvation, what God did to reconcile us to himself. Um, so we see here that everything is subject to him. Everything is placed under his feet. There's nothing outside of his control, um, even though now we don't, necessarily see it. Nothing is outside of his control. And he's crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering death. Uh, it's by grace that he tastes the death for everyone. Um, but I think what's of most importance here is that Christ took on flesh. He took on the nature of man and tasted death on the behalf of man. So it's amazing to realize that God came to earth in the form of a man and took the just penalty that we rightly deserve. And then we see that he took this just penalty on the behalf of all, that he tasted death for everyone. There's a lot more we could get into on Hebrews 2, um, just talking about the preeminence of Christ and just the amazing uh, way that Christ came. But like I said, we're going to we're gonna move on from there and talk about t- these two other verses before we get too long um, in time here. For John 3, uh, 16 through 18, we're actually going to read John 3, 13, uh, starting verse 13 through 21. And John 3.13 says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In a, in a book by author Austin Brown, and it's called A Boisterously Reformed Polemic Against Limited Atonement, he writes um, in chapter 8, I believe, on this, on these verses here, he asks this question, and I think it's actually a, a pretty important question for framing our discussion about John 3 here. Um, he says, so the question is, do the non-elect fall within the scope of the term world in John 3.16? And he goes on to say that if you say no, the non-elect do not fall within the scope of the term world in John 3.16, then another way to paraphrase this verse of John 3.16 to include that theological um, answer to that question in the negative, that they don't fall in the term world, is, For God so loved the elect scattered throughout the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And he goes on to say if the question is answered in the affirmative, if you would say yes, the non-elect fall within the scope of the term, term world in John 3.16, you could paraphrase it as such. For God so loved the totality of sinful humanity, all people without exception, that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So that's the question uh, I'd like you to ask yourself. Which of those you think um, kind of your theological system falls inside of? Um, and then we're going to look at which of the data, which of the exegetical data best fits one of those paraphrases. So the prologue to John's Gospel, chapter 1, I think is uh, very important, and it uh, helps inform what we're going to discuss for John 3. Um, so we see that Christ is the true light, and that as the true light, he shines in the darkness. He provides light to everyone. Um, John the Baptist bore witness to this light, so that all might believe through him. Yet, we know that all don't believe. So throughout John's Gospel, it's um, a sad reality that even though Christ was this bright light that entered the world, calling men to repent and believe, uh, uh, more times than not, they rejected him. They refused to come to light. They loved their darkness. So it's while some did believe, uh, the majority did not. And so Christ is the light of the world, calling men to repent and believe. And the world of ungodly men, which included Jews and Gentiles, uh, rejected him, rejected the light. So I find myself in the second paraphrasing of that question, um, that it means the totality of sinful humanity is who God loved. That's what world includes and not elect. So why do I find myself in that camp? Well, if we look at um, verses 14 and 15, about Moses lifting up the serpent, um, we see that the lifting of the serpent, um, that through that lifting up of the serpent, um, the dying lived. And so by the voice of God, they that were dead, those Israelites that were poisoned, those that were going to die, all Israelites who had been bitten by the fiery serpent, who were going to die, if they but turn and look at the raised serpent, they would live. So as the serpent was raised up, so shall Christ be lifted up. As they who were stung by the fiery serpents were restored by looking up at that bronze serpent, so those who are infected with and dying through sin are healed and saved by looking up to and believing in Christ crucified. So all Israelites who were bitten by fiery serpents could look up at that 
bronze serpent raised up and live. So all men who were dead and infected and dying of sin can be healed and find life by looking up at Christ risen up and crucified on their behalf. So God had graciously and mercifully provided a way of healing for anyone and everyone who had been bitten by the snake. And that, um, by Jesus' own words, is extended to him being raised up on the cross. That all of those afflicted by sin, which is everybody, the world, all of humanity, the totality of sinful humanity, is infected and dead in sin. So that is who can look upon Christ, believe in him, and find healing and salvation. There was none. There was no Israelite that had been bitten by the snake that if they had looked would not have been healed. So the provision of the snake was an actual provision sufficient for the healing power for everyone that would look upon it. The same applies to Christ. Is that Him being raised upon the cross is sufficient for all that would look upon Him and have faith in Him. So this is Christ's own comparison, his own words, drawing that comparison in verses 14 and 15. And then 16 starts with four. So it connects it back to the verses before it. So for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So this is connected to what Christ was just saying about the servant being raised. Now he must be raised that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And connected that for God so loved the world they gave his only son that whoever, both of these terms are illustrating a universality to the breadth of God's um, amazing, gracious, atoning work. And then moving forward in 18, you get whoever believes in him, contrasts with whoever does not believe is condemned already. Um, uh, verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light um, the language is just consistently over and over um, universal in nature and that finally brings us to our last verse we're going to cover um, in this podcast is first john uh, chapter 2 we're going to look at verse 2 specifically but we're going to read a little bit around it for context first john 2 1 through 3 says my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It seems extremely difficult here to say um, that those in mind are men of every kind, or that it's only speaking of believers. Um, here John specifically says, not only the sins of the children of God, as he mentioned in verse 1, but he extends it to the whole world. Uh, John Gill, in his commentary, writes that this is referring to the Jews first as the children of God, and then including the Gentiles with the phrasing of the whole world. Um, that leads me to the question. So if the wording of this, according to John Gill, um, is including of Jews and Gentiles, is that not the whole world? Is that not everyone, Jews and Gentiles? Unless you further constrict the meaning to exclude some Jews and exclude some Gentiles, it seems to be speaking of everyone when it says not only our sins, but that of the world. So we see the advocacy of Christ Jesus to the Father is limited 
to the little children that he's writing to that they may not sin, but when they do sin, they have an advocate with the Father through Christ Jesus. So that is a limited advocacy. But we see his propitiation is extends as far and as wide as sin extends. And sin extends to include the whole world. So his propitiation extends and covers all of sin. So there is limited advocacy to believers, but the propitiation is worldwide. So Christ, as our advocate to the Father, um, when we sin or if we sin, the verse, uh, this isn't related to atonement necessarily, but the the verse doesn't say um, that when we sin, as if it's inevitable that we're going to sin. Um, It says that if you sin, so don't read this as saying that you you must sin, you will sin again. Um, Sin is not a necessity uh, once we've been saved by Christ and in union with him by faith. But uh, when we sin, we have an advocate to the Father, and we confess our sin to Christ. Um, He is our advocate, he's our righteous advocate to the Father. But he, on top of that, he also perfectly fulfilled God's righteousness towards sin. So he's actually the propitiation for that very sin that we have committed. Um, the work that he's accomplished is the basis of our restoration and our fellowship with the Father. And he's not only the propitiation for the, that particular sin that we're confessing at that time, um, he's the propitiation for all of our sins and also for the sins of all of God's children. So it couldn't be otherwise when he accomplished the work at the cross. He knew exactly who would have believed in him since Adam and who he was going to who was going to believe in the future. Of all these people, he knew all of their sins and therefore became the propitiation for all of the sins of the children of God. He knew them and he accounted for them. Um, but it doesn't stop there. It goes further. It says that he is also the propitiation for the whole world. Now, it's important that we don't read this and think that it's saying that he, um, this leads to universal salvation, that this leads to the conclusion that all ultimately will be saved in a universalism where uh, there is no punishment for sin in the end, that all are saved, and that all will be in heaven one day. Um, we know from Scripture that that's not true, that some will be condemned um, to hell. Unrepentant sinners will be in hell because they have rejected the atonement of Christ. So the work of the Lord, Jesus, is uh, of such great value, and his blood reaches so far that on that ground God can save each person. That's, That's God's side of the truth. But the other side of the truth is that only the person who repents and becomes a partaker of that through faith in Christ, reaps those benefits. So don't read this verse as a universalism in that all people ultimately will be saved. That's unscriptural, that's unbiblical. But read it in that the value of Christ's blood, um, it reaches so far that it covers all sin, that all can be saved. So God's side, again, of that truth is that propitiation has been um, sufficiently made, but it's only efficient, it's only effective 
for those that repent and believe by faith through the grace of God. So with that, we're um, on the 31-minute mark here. So we're going to start, we're going to wrap this episode up. Um, I think the next podcast will be on the topic of election. And I think this is really where a lot of distinction starts to come in um, from Arminian theology to other Reformed and Protestant theologies. So we're going to take a look at what the Bible teaches um, about election, um, what Arminian theology has to say about election, and I think this is where you're really going to start to see a lot of distinctions. So obviously, there's um, lots of differences in opinion about uh, the scope of the atonement. Um, but there's even, I think, more distinction and more differences. And uh, the major differences start to come in when you talk about election and how God, before the foundation of the world, chose those that would be his children, those that would come to faith in him. So with that, that's going to end episode nine on the atonement. So take that message out to the world. Remind the world that the Christ is King, Christ is Lord, and Christ is Savior of all.